0: We're going to continue in Chronicles, and largely, as I've said, Chronicles is arranged, focused largely on David and Solomon as these two kings, um, who are really um, looking like the kings we've been looking for, if you will. They're the ones who are going to uh, bring Israel finally, you know, as the people in the land um, to the point God has. Um, required they come. And I want to, I'll address that a little bit, um, just to go back and give you some foundation for that. Again, I keep giving that foundation because I don't want you to forget it. Um, And then we'll look um, specifically at some passages here in this section where Solomon is now dead and we're turning to the kings that follow um, and some of the problems with those kings. So let me pray and and we'll Um, get started. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, thankful that we have life and breath. We know it is a gift from you. Um, We're thankful that we have the privilege of spending time in your Word together. Help us to understand what it is you're doing here, what it is you require of us, and the ways in which um, we, throughout history um, and in our own lives, have failed to do the things that you've commanded, um, and help us to trust in your Son, who has kept those commands in our place, and paid our penalty for us in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so as we come into Chronicles, I remind you guys: Chronicles is one book. We we've broken it into First and Second Chronicles. It's originally one book, and in the Hebrew canon, it's the last book of the Old Testament. In our canon, we've reordered it with the other historical books, Samuel and Kings, but and the, the book, if you will, the Bible Jesus would have read. It would have been the last uh, book of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, and so it's the, the, I told you before, the Old Testament is essentially arranged around, um, if you will, two books, Genesis at the beginning. That's Genesis, we get that word from the genealogies. That's arranged around a series of genealogies driving you to one man. Who is he? Abraham. Driving you to Abraham. And I want to look at that in a minute, because we're looking for the seed of the woman who's going to save us. So Genesis opens up with, here's man created in this perfect place as this priest-king, Adam, obeying God's law, communing with the Lord, loving the Lord with his whole heart, etc. And then Adam um, sins. He's tempted to sin. He falls into sin. and, And there, off Adam goes into sin. God kicks him out of his land. God um, drops the curse on him, et cetera, and God makes a promise that through um, the seed of the woman, there a savior will come. So that's right in, all the way through Genesis 3. And you just have these genealogies then that drive you to one man, Abraham. So you sweep through world you know, history, if you will, around better than 2,000 years of world history between Adam and Abraham. Um, and you do that in... Eight chapters, right? Then you get to Abraham chapter 12, and then it's like all about Abraham and his family for the rest of Genesis, and really Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and Judges, and Samuel, and Kings. It's really all about Abraham's family, right? Um, So we, and the nation that comes from them. So that's the first book. You're saying, okay, now this seed of the woman is coming through this man, Abraham. Genealogies driving you to one man, Abraham. The last book of the Bible, Chronicles, the Old Testament Bible, starts with ten chapters of genealogies, driving you to one man. Who is it? David. David. Um, so the king, the son of Abraham, right? And so that's how this, the Bible's bracketed. One book set of genealogies driving to Abraham, the other set of genealogy driving you to David. And then Matthew, of course, opens up um, with the beginning of the gospel or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And it's driving you to the fact that this one is the one who's fulfilling what these guys were pointing to. Now, um, what I want to do is ground some of that kingship um, language. You're going to get it Chronicles back again with Abraham. So remember, Adam is supposed to be a priest king. What do I mean by that? He's supposed to serve and obey God, right? That's pretty clear. Um, Supposed to serve and guard the garden, most specifically in Genesis 2, which is, um, if you guys remember, I told you that Hebrew phrase, to serve and guard, or um, is, is the language that you see all through the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, with regard to the priestly service. He's also supposed to Uh, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and do what? What's the next word? Subdue it, which is the language of a king. He's to subdue it. He's to rule over it. So he's originally a priest king, and he's cast out. When we come to Abraham, he again is a kind of um, priest king. He intercedes for people. You guys remember that? So you'll see him intercede even for the nations in Genesis 18. That's what's happening the Lord tells him, and uh, uh, let's just go back. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3 real quickly. So turn there. Um, and then I'll just build to that instead. Um, so just getting you right to the, the answer, we'll just build it real quick. So Genesis 12. Now note what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Adam was God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. Because of sin, man is cast out of God's place, the garden. He is no longer under God's rule and blessing, but the curse. And um, he, he isn't God's people anymore, right? And so now you're driving to Abraham, and here comes God's blessing to Abraham. And you'll see this in our Sunday morning sermons Um, somewhat this week, but more in the future as we spend more time on Abraham. There's a five-fold blessing here, if you notice the word blessings used five times. There are five curses from Genesis 3 through 11, and so now you have five blessings upon Abraham here, and there's a real focus like, okay, this is the one, this is the one who's going to be the seed of the woman. Here he is. He's going to be God's people. He has God's name upon him. He's going to go to God's place, the land God will show him. Right? He's going to be under God's rule and blessing, clearly. And he's going to go to that land, and he's going to live like a king there, and like a priest there. Now, why do we know that? Why did that well, you're going to see it played out in the subsequent chapters that he's going to act somewhat like a king in the areas that he goes, if you will, um, and like a priest. You're going to see that played out, but you're going to see it especially played out in his genealogy. Uh, what I want to focus on is Genesis 17, turn there briefly, Genesis 17, you'll see this promise when I say a priest, king. Notice what God says, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, are you guys, you guys notice that? I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. So that's picking up Genesis 1.28, isn't it? Everything's going to be, that, that's been lost in Adam is going to be regained in you, right? Um, you're going to be the one who blesses the nations. You're going to be the one that, that Adam was supposed to do, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You're the one who's going to do that. And actually, Adam was commanded to do it. I'm just going to make it happen in you. You guys noticing that? Um, Right? I will make you, ex- remember Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Abraham, I will make you fruitful. You guys hear the distinction? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so I'll make you fr- exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. You guys tracking with that? Now, this is why when you get to Genesis 18 and you see the story of Lot who's living where? Sodom and Gomorrah. What He's living in Sodom specifically, but those cities. What does Abraham do for those cities? He intercedes before God. Why is Abraham, so I just want you to follow Genesis 17, Genesis 12, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, right, will conquer the seed of the serpent. He'll be the blessing to all the nations. Now, why does Abraham then, when he sees these pagan nations... God's going to exercise wrath on them, stop and intercede for them. So you can't miss the context when you go to read that story. What's happening? Well, he understands, I'm to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to intercede for them. He is in this role of a kind of priest king with his people. And his family is growing out of that. So he has Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob has how many tribes? Twelve. Okay, from his sons. Um... One of them being the two sons of Joseph, if you remember, Ephraim and Manasseh. But that, that's the 12 tribes. When we drive through that, we then hear that Abraham um, has a son, if you will. When I say son, I mean in the sense of a male offspring down the line from him. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, right? Um, so go to Genesis 49. And so I'm going to keep pushing into this king theme, Genesis 49, Genesis 49, um, Jacob tells his sons, verse 1, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Actually, best translated, in the latter days. That's the phrase. In the eschaton. In other words, the end of all things, in the latter days. He's going to give him a eschatological prophecy, a latter days prophecy, um, And um, this is where um, your eschatology starts, Genesis. (laughs) So, not just in Revelation, but right here. So here he has this prophecy. Now look down at verse 8, specifically. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. You notice that language, it sounds a lot like the foot on the devil's head, right? You're going to be crushing your opponents, your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the what? The peoples. Not just the people, i.e. the Jews. The peoples, i.e. all the nations. Right? And um, the scepter shall not depart from you. So a king is coming in this line who is going to crush his enemies, who's going to have righteous rule over the people. Okay. Now, we don't have a nation yet. We just have a family. right? We have a family. Something I didn't pick up, which I will pick up this Sunday's sermon, is that there's a table of nations in Genesis 10 of 70 nations. 70 nations. Abraham's family at the end of Genesis... Has 70 members, right? It's not unintentional. When you open up Exodus 1, those 70 family members now grow, and we're told 70 again, grow into a nation, right? God has made them exceedingly fruitful, and He's multiplied them, and now they're a nation in slavery in Egypt. And they go out of Egypt as a nation in the Exodus, and God keeps coming back to the Abrahamic promises. If you remember, they're in slavery, and what has God said? He remembers His promise to Abraham, right? And so he brings them out of slavery. He sends Moses to bring them out of slavery. And he takes them toward the promised land. And they go, if you will, um, through the Exodus up to the mountain to get the law. And there at the law, they, when they get that as a nation, they're now organized into, if you will, the Mosaic Covenant comes, the covenant with Moses comes. They're what we call the Old Covenant. They're now organized into a body politic, Right? Exodus 19 through 24 is their constitution, if you will. Here's your constitution as a nation. Here's how you'll live together. You'll have um, priests, and here's the law. Like, so here's the moral law. Now here's how that moral law is going to show up in society. So Exodus 20, here's your moral law. Exodus 19, this is the kind of people I made you to be, and this is the kind of people you shall be. You guys follow? Exodus 20, here's the law. Here's the moral law this, that, that should be in your heart. I've written it on tablets of stone, but you should want to follow it, okay? Exodus 21, here's how that moral law 22, here's how that moral law applies in daily life. If your neighbors, like, don't murder a man, Sixth Commandment. So if your neighbor's ox is out goring people and you don't tie that ox up, you're going to be responsible, that's manslaughter. You guys understand the application of the Sixth Commandment there? okay. Um, you know those kinds of, So you start seeing the application of the commandments to the law of Israel in their particular cultural circumstances. So here's what you look like as a nation. It's your, sort of your constitution. And here's how you're going to worship because there's going to be priests and they're going to dress this way and there's going to be a tabernacle and God's going to fill that tabernacle and you're going to worship in this way and when you sin, here are your sacrifices because I know you're going to break these laws I just gave you. <laughs> and so here's the sacrificial system to deal with that. You guys tracking with me so far? Okay, so he's governing their body politic and their worship through that covenant with Moses. Um, And they're looking forward to a kind of king, but they don't have one. Now, how do I know that? Because Genesis 49 promises them a king, doesn't it? That's how I know that. Now, let's go on. Leviticus 17. So we'll just give you... Actually, let's go to Deuteronomy 17. Sorry, Deuteronomy 17. Just so we can see this king. And I'm going to look at a couple of passages here in Deuteronomy just to make this as clear as we can. Um, look at verse 14. It's, it, if you notice the subheading that you have in your Bible, most of your, it's, that subheading is not original of the text, but most of the guys they put them in. So what does it say? Laws concerning, Israel. Laws concerning Israel's kings. Does Israel have any kings yet? No, but yet they're going to get laws concerning their kings, okay? They're supposed to have a king. Like this this charge that Israel's problem was when she came into the land, she wanted a king, that that's that's a sin that they wanted a king, that's wrong. They were promised a king. Genesis 49, they're told how the king should live. The problem they have is they don't want the king God wants to give. They want the king they want to, you know, if you will, Um, put in place themselves, right? Okay, so notice what it says, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Do you you guys just notice that? You're, You're welcome. But the one the Lord chooses. Is that what they do? No, they choose Saul. Why? Because he's tall, he's good-looking, he seems powerful, he seems like the right guy. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember the story of Judges, the Benjaminites, um, well, first of all, if you remember the promise, the king's not coming through the tribe of Benjamin, but from the tribe of Judah. But secondly, the Benjaminites at the end of Judges, just you know, they're in the land just before they pick a king, and Judges, what do the Benjaminites do? They act probably as bad or worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So essentially, you know, you read Judges, you come into Samuel and you see them pick a Benjaminite for a king, this good-looking, powerful king, whose whose tribe is not in the kingly line, and whose tribe has just acted like Sodom and Gomorrah, and you recognize really clearly, oh, this this is not the king we should be picking. You guys understand, they're picking as worldly a king as they can get, if you will. Um, You know, so... You understand how that looks. So notice what he goes on to say. The one I'll choose. Um, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Um, Now notice it says, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to turn to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never return that way again. Um, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire from himself excessive silver and gold. What, what's he saying about this king? He's not supposed to be what? He's supposed to be the one God chooses. He's supposed to be from among your brothers, not a foreigner. And he's not supposed to do what? Seek worldly gain. Seek worldly gain. He's not supposed to exalt himself with wealth. He's not supposed to exalt himself with power. And he's certainly not to turn you back to the pagan nations, to lean on them, to trust in them. You don't trust in the pagan nations. You trust in God. You don't go back to Egypt. No, none of them. And look at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so he's supposed to be a man who meditates upon the law of God, who loves the law of God, who keeps the law of God. You guys tr- tracking with that? Simple enough. Not seeking world gain, not taking the people back to relying on pe- powerful pagan nations. Um, you know, Russell made the comment, um, one of our pastors made the comment that when, in the Exodus, you know, God gets Israel out of Egypt, and then through the rest of the Old Testament, it's like He's getting Egypt out of Israel, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> and, and, they they still want to keep going back to the pagan wickedness, if you will. And I think, well, when we're looking at this, is this is what the King's supposed? To, how he's supposed to lead? He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. He's supposed to he's supposed to have a whole heart towards God, love the law. Not make alliances with pagans, not enrich himself, not take many wives. You, you guys follow that? What happens, and if he does, he'll live long as a king. If he doesn't, he'll be cut off quickly. What, what happens to the people if the people and their king keep acting wickedly? Yeah, consequences that come. So go over and look at Deuteronomy and go to chapter 28. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. They, they, not many. <laughs> they, Solomon obviously becomes a prime offender there. I don't care what many is, that's more than That's more than many, <laughs> yeah. So, all right, chapter 28, notice this. Verse 1, And if you faithfully obey the voice of your, the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you to, today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. Remember, that's what you want to be. Called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its seasons, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you you shall only go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God." which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or the left to go after other gods to serve them. Okay, so here's going to be the blessing for this nation. If they obey the Lord with their whole heart, they're going to be the, this blessed nation. Um, but if they fail to obey, right? If they fail to obey with their whole heart, not a partial heart, you understand that? Okay, so this is obedience from the heart. This isn't, this, this is, I, so I want to step back a minute. When God covenants with Abraham, has Abraham done anything good to deserve that? No, Abraham's got a pagan father, that's clear, from Joshua. A, Abraham is a pagan father. Abraham, it, the Lord comes to him, calls him out, makes these promises to him, and says, walk with me. Okay, walk before me and I'll, I'll, I'll bless you. Does Abraham always do that? No. In the very next scene, he's down in Egypt going, she's my sister, right? Like, so, you know, (laughs) he's not always walking with God in faith, but God is, like, relentlessly being kind and gracious to him and makes these promises. Abraham's sons, do they always keep those laws, if you will? No. But they're commanded to be following God with a whole heart. Israel, does she do it? No, but she's commanded to be. And so when he comes in and makes these promises, blessings and cursing upon law keeping or not, he's not saying you can just have this kind of external righteousness where it looks sort of good on the outside. He's saying you have to love me with your whole heart from the inside out, and you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. What's the problem? What's the problem with this among men? Loving God with their whole heart?
1: They're sinners.
0: They're half-hearted at best. So, so you keep not having a resolution to who's this man who's going to sit on the throne, right, who's going to be the priest king we all need. We, we just, you're, just, you're just without resolution. Now, does God, God gives many men in, this old, in the Old Testament new life, right? They, they, they're born again, if you will, and they are walking with the Lord, and they are trusting in his promises, but none of them are really qualified to sit on the throne forever as the priest-king. None of them, right? Um, In fact, once you get to Israel, you break the priest, the king, and the prophet into three separate offices, so you have no man who can be both priest and king at all. Right? You don't have one who can hold all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Um, So that's that's a huge problem. Now, these are blessings, though. Inasmuch as they're relatively obedient and love the Lord, or inasmuch as they have kings who love the Lord, um, they're going to be blessed. Inasmuch as they don't, they're going to be cursed. Look at the next verse, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. You guys sing the reverse? Cursed shall you be... In the field, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you all on curses, confusion. Um, That's what Babel's named, right? The city of Babel, Confusion. Um, "'confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do "'until you're destroyed and perish quickly "'on account of the evil of your deeds "'because you have forsaken me. "'The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you "'until he's consumed you off the land "'that you're entering to take possession of it. "'The Lord will will strike you with wasting disease and fever, "'inflammation and fiery heart, "'and with drought and with blight and with mildew. "'They shall pursue you until you perish, "'and the heavens over your head shall be bronze "'and the earth under you shall be iron.'" The Lord will make the rain on your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you're destroyed. To make the sky bronze and the earth iron is called is a drought. It's drought. There's no rain coming, so the earth is getting hard, and all you're getting instead of rain is dust. It's just dust, right? Um, until you're destroyed. Uh, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, which tumors and, scab- with, and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and shall not prosper in your ways. You're just going to be so confused in your mind, right, and your language. Remember I told you babble's confusion of languages, right, so that you, you just can't even communicate anymore. It means non-communication. And I just said, like, in our own culture now, it's like Babel. We, we can't even use our own language anymore. What pronouns are appropriate? I don't even know anymore, right? So yeah, it's, it's just Babel, confusion of the mind. We also have drought and diseases. Anyway, but that's a different thing. Okay, so the Lord will right? Notice what's happening here. It's not going to be good for you. Okay, he's going to bring all these curses on you. That's what he's saying to Israel. Now, so they need a king and a people who love the Lord with their whole heart and keep his commandments, and they're waiting for that. So they get, as we go down through their history, they finally get David a man after God's own heart. And he is a king who loves the Lord, and so the Lord prospers his kingdom greatly. You guys remember that. And Israel's unified under David and Solomon. And they, they are wise and godly and love the Lord, and they're prospering everywhere, and their enemies are bowing down. To the point with Solomon, you find the point where the enemy nations are even coming to Solomon asking for wisdom. Okay, you guys remember this? Okay, so... All the blessings are upon them. What's the problem with David? Yeah, so the problem David is David stayed back from the war, went up on the roof, checked out Bathsheba, and everything went south from there, right, for David. He started disobeying God's law, and you go, okay, well, David's not the king we've been waiting for. He sure seemed like it. Now, God did make a promise to David, however, uh, before that, that, one would sit on his throne, right? Forever. His own son would sit on his throne. Not him. He wouldn't build the temple where God would dwell. His son would. He wouldn't sit on the throne forever. His son would. So then you come to Solomon, the son that he must be talking about. This is how, first chron- this is how Chronicles is ending, is what I'm saying. So you go back to, this is the beginning of the Bible. Now how Chronicles is ending. Are you guys tracking with me? With David and Solomon. Solomon's got a zoo. Why? Because he's like in, the, like in Eden, dwelling in peace with the animals. That's what it's trying to give you. It's like this picture. He's leading worship in the temple, almost like a priest king. He's godly. The nations are flowing to him, asking him for wisdom, bringing their treasures in. He's conquered everyone all around. They're completely at peace. There's a unified people. It all looks great. And you're pretty sure Solomon must be the one. And then you get this phrase but Solomon loved many foreign women. (laughs) Oh no, right? He's not the one, right? And so again, Israel's in trouble, right? And then after all of that, you start to go through a series of kings and you just alternate between somewhat righteous kings or really fairly righteous kings and fairly unrighteous kings. And what I'm telling you is, this is how the Old Testament's going to end, with Israel in exile after a series of righteous and unrighteous kings. And they keep getting more and more wicked. So go to, du- now, with that said, go to 2 Chronicles 10. We've set the table, if you will. We're past David and Solomon. And I want to emphasize this. This is the end of the, old, the Jewish canon. It's not the end of Israel's history, because... After Chronicles, historically, they go into exile. You guys remember that? Under Nebuchadnezzar. And then they come out in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they never regain their godly, they never become godly like they should. They build the temple again, they build the wall, but they don't reform the people, their hearts. Um, And they keep marrying foreign women. That's how Ezra and Nehemiah. So the book right before this, Chronicles Ezra and Nehemiah, where they come out of the exile, which is actually historically after this. But they come out of the exile... They build the temple, they build the city, but they don't, the people aren't reformed, and both Ezra and Nehemiah end with them intermarrying with foreign women again. Right? They keep doing that and going after pagan gods. And so now, when you come to Chronicles at the very end, you go back in time, and the Old Testament ends with a series of, here's a godly king, here's a godly king, they both descended to sin, Now here comes a series of godly and ungodly kings, and you're just going to end that way. Right with the people going off into exile. The Old Testament's going to end in exile. Remember, what's going to come upon them if the kings are righteous? Blessings. What's going to come upon them if the kings are wicked? Curses. And how do they finally end? In exile, which we're going to see next week. But look, look here. We'll just see righteous and unrighteous, or law-keeping and non-law-keeping kings. And notice some of the language. The revolt against Rehoboam. Notice this. Re- Rehoboam, verse 1, went to Shechem, For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, this is great, the elders, who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay, so <laughs> it sounds like a young man, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, uh, uh, the, the, you know, Proverbs, a soft answer turns away wrath. Uh, uh, you know, the people are really upset with what's been going on, and the old men are like, hey, brother, take them aside and encourage them, and, and then the young men are like, they're going to challenge you. Just put them in their place, right? Okay, so, and he listens to the young men. That does not go particularly well. Look at verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. <laughs> you guys see that? doesn't go very well. Now look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. Okay. So here's what I want you to pick up here. Notice what's happened. Jeroboam, who's representing Israel, the northern kingdom, northern part of the kingdom, because remember, it's a united kingdom under David and Solomon. Okay? Jeroboam, who represents the northern kingdom, has come to the king of the southern kingdom, of Judah, and he said to him, hey, things were kind of harsh for us, right? Especially toward the end. They got really bad. Can you... Be a good king and we'll follow you. And Rehoboam's response is, he disciplined me with whips, I'll discipline you with scorpions, right? My little finger is thicker than his thigh. I'm, I'm way, you know, more tough than he is, if you will. So they're, they're, the northern kingdom rebels and now you have a split in the nation of Israel, northern and southern. They never reunite. You guys, remember what the northern kingdom becomes called? Samaria. You can see the problems between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah even in the Gospels, can't you? It's, it's all the way in there. Um, and the reuniting of the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah is part of the promise of the Gospels so that Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you with power and you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, that's Judah. And what? Samaria. Right? You're going to reunite what was divided by these wicked kings. Now why? Because it's Christ working through his apostles by the Spirit to bring back um, what was lost by wicked kings. Okay, So this is what's happening. Now notice what continues to happen um, is things get worse. Look down at chapter 11, verse 13. And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived for the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. In other words, um, Jeroboam and Israel rebel and they become idolaters. And, and so then the priests and those who were there come down and Judah's now being strengthened because all those who love the Lord are coming to Judah. You guys tracking with that? Okay. Particularly these priests. And they walked three years. Look at, at the end of verse 17 of chapter 11. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. In other words, that's good. That, that was good. That was good. Um, Chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. How do you think that's going to (laughs) go? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's not going to go well. And so he starts to get his butt handed to him after this. That's technical theological speak there. And uh, (laughs) because of this... And then notice what happens down in verse 12. And when he humbled himself, when he, chapter 12, verse 12, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. So notice that um, he goes to repentance and things get better. Verse 13, so King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was ne- um, name of the Ammonite, and he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. In other words, so what's your final summary of Rehoboam? Some good, some bad, but what's the final summary? <laughs> he was evil. He was an evil king, right? He was an evil king. So, and, and so was Jeroboam in Israel. You guys tracking with that? So look at chapter 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned, over, uh, he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Again, um, Notice the battle that's happening between, between the north and the south. Um, go down to verse 18. I just want to give you some summaries because we have to kind of move quickly here. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time. That's the northern kingdom. Men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed. Why? Because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Verse 20. Uh, Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah and the Lord struck him down and he died. But Abijah grew mighty and he took 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. (laughs) Is that a good thing? (laughs) Okay. All right, so you're like, Things are going so well. You're going to see, like you're, you repented, the Lord is doing the good thing, and you're like, give me a bunch of women. Okay, so this is, this is what happens. All right, you see it again and again and again. All right, Abijah slept with his fathers, chapter 14, verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. Why? And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord as God. You guys notice that? So what happens to the land when the king does what's good and right? Has rest, right? Go to chapter 15, verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when they're dis- in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him. He was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out to him, or, or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the ha- inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation and city by city, For God troubled troubled them with every sort of distress, but you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So he's being told all of this, and they they entered into, go down to verse 12, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. Go down to the end of verse 15, because all Judah's rejoicing, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Okay, so it's all looking real good, right? Verse 16. Even Makah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen, mother, because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, it, burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. So Asa's good, In that he's bringing all the treasures back into the temple, they're following the Lord with all their heart and soul. They're doing what they're supposed to do, so there's rest during his days. He's even cutting down some of the idols, but what does he fail to do? Remove the high places. Remove all the high places, the places where the pagans worship. Okay, and because he doesn't do that, that's going to pretend problems for Israel in the future, right? Um, And that's you're you're getting the warning that it's coming. So the lat the Chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So they're going to try to um, blockade, if you will, Judah. Israel is. Um, and, and things start to go badly. Look down at chapter 7. Um, At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria. So here's what Asa does. Um, Sorry, I skipped this part um, in the reading. Asa's like, man, Israel's blockading us. They're building up an army against us, the northern kingdom. What are we going to do? What should Asa have done? Gone to the Lord, prayed, trusted him. Instead, Asa goes to the king of Syria. Remember what they were warned not to do in Deuteronomy 17 as kings. Don't go to these foreign pagan kings for strength. But he does. He goes to Syria. Um, And Hanani, the seer, comes to him and says, because you relied, verse 7, on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. I'm chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was enraged with them because of this. Now, are you supposed to... Imprison prophets who tell you the truth. <laughs> nope. Um, and Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the books of kings of Judah and Israel. In the t- 39th year of, the reign of, Asa, in, of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even as in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but sought help from physicians. Now, this isn't a point, the point isn't don't go to doctors, okay? Um, the, the point is, is that he's not trusting the Lord. In war, he's not trusting the Lord, in his health, he's not trusting. He's turned from him. Now, you just finish a chapter where it's like, man, everything's going well for Asa. Leaves the high places, and then it goes south. Um, chapter 17, Jehoshaphat comes. Um, Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. In other words, north that was pagan. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honors. His and honor, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. That's taking you back to, and furthermore, he took the high places in the ashram out of Judah, right? So this guy is like doing great, and look at verse 10. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and there, they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Remember that in Deuteronomy 17? If the king does this, the nations fear them, right? And so you're seeing that played out. Um, you know, and, and then it's, it's, it's going to go in a not-so-good way, okay? <laughs> it's like, yes, chapter 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria... And Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered, I am, with, I am as you are, my people are as your people. We will be in, uh, with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first of the, of the, for, the, uh, for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give you it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, now this is where Jehoshaphat is on the money. Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet, Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. <laughs> like, we can ask him, but well, I don't like what he has to say. Okay, um, go down to verse 12. <laughs> and the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of the one uh, of one of them and speak favorably. In other words, the messenger goes to the prophet Micaiah and says, okay, Jehoshaphat has essentially demanded that we hear from you too. Um, and, and, you know, the king of Israel doesn't really want to hear from you. But we've already heard from all these prophets. They said favorable things. You need to say something favorable as well, right? That's the advance warning. And, uh, and Micaiah, but verse 13, but Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramah Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered, go up in triumph, they will be given to your hand. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw Israel scattered, all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home." And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? In other words, he's going to take out the kings and they're going to scatter, right? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Okay, I read this and I'm not gonna answer the question about the, the ethical considerations that come from this. But note what is happening here. I want prophets to, to, who say good things to me. And I have hundreds of them who will tell me whatever I want to hear. Like, that's their role. And a true prophet comes before me. I don't want to hear from him because he says things I don't like, right? So he's like, I'm going to tell you the truth. He does. And the king is demanding a different kind of word. And then this prophet says to him what? Actually, let me tell you what's happening right now. Let me sort of pull back the curtain and show you what's happening in heaven. All these lying prophets are actually evil spirits sent by the Lord to lie to you. So that you'll do the wrong thing so that the Lord will cut you down. Okay. Chew on that. Give it a day. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Lord sent lying spirits to cause the king to... Um, be cut down. So, here's a question: Just, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, this prophet's a true prophet, though. Well, Ahab deserves judgment. Ahab deserves judgment. Go ahead, Brett. He asked for lies. Also, is Correct. Correct. So, he asked for lies. So, God's like, that's what you want, that's what I'm going to give you. Right? Um, This is a wicked king set against the things of the Lord, trying to manipulate God to get what he wants. And basically, God's not going to be manipulated. Um, And so, the Lord is declaring war on him. That's what he's doing. Um, Yeah, he uses wicked spirits, and wicked kingdoms all the time. Wicked men all the time. So he's going to send Babylon in, if you guys remember. Yep, he's going to send Babylon in. He's going to, um, he's going to send wicked people. That doesn't justify their wickedness. Um, remember, prior to this, this king wants lying prophets, and there are plenty of men lining up to be lying prophets. right? so, all right. But you have to give some thoughts that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than you're aware of, is what you're being told. If you're, if you're a liar and you want lies, you're, you're going to get them, right, um, And to your own destruction. This is the same kind of language you hear in Romans 1. When God's wrath comes upon man for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, what happens? Three times... For the wrath, right, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They stand over the truth and press it down. They don't want to hear it, okay? And they turn from the worship of God to the worship of the creation. And then what does God do? How does the wrath, the wrath of God is presently being revealed against them. Not the wrath of God is coming someday. The wrath of God is presently being revealed against them. How, how is it being revealed? Three times. What's that? He gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to their sin, right, three times. This is what, you know, you see when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then God's wrath is being revealed when he gives you over to your wickedness to the point where you have a depraved mind and heart and you're, you're essentially living in babble or confusion, right? So that's what you're seeing in Romans 1, 18 and following in, you know, the city around when they're giving over to homosexuality. That's the first move. It's it's a clear picture of confusion. Right? It's a clear picture of confusion. And so this this is where you're running down this road. Now, Jehoshaphat will lead reforms. I can keep going through these kings, but are you generally getting the picture? As we go all the way through, you're going to see this again and again. When the king honors the Lord, he is blessed. When he dishonors the Lord, he is cursed. And you're just going to see a series of kings, and they get worse and worse and worse. And even the people um, get, become more and more wicked. So look at chapter 27 really quickly, and then I want to take you back to Deut- Deuteronomy to end us today. Chapter 27. Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father um, Uzziah had done, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Remember, King Uzziah was good for a long time, and then he got so full of himself, he enters the temple like he can be a priest. Okay, He didn't do that. Now notice the next phrase. But the people still followed corrupt practices. So now you have a godly king with a corrupt people right? Um, It's just getting worse (laughs) and worse and worse. Till you look at chapter 28, and Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, right? Um, Okay, look at uh, verse 22 of that same chapter. We'll kind of and here, and then Deuteronomy. In the time of his distress, so he's not doing what he's supposed to do, right? And so the Lord humbles Judah, and then it, what does it say? Verse 22, in the time of his distress, what does the king do? He became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same King Ahaz. You see, you see what's happening? Like you're seeing a, um, he doesn't repent, he becomes more faithless. You're seeing a growing degradation of the kings and the people, right, into wickedness. Um, and you see a constant, a constant refrain that when they're walking in godliness, prosperity comes, and then what do they do? They become puffed up and prideful and turn to disobedience. Um, none of these kings are the kings they need. They all keep bringing the curses increasingly. When you come to the end of Chronicles, end of the Old Testament, the people are in exile. People are in exile because God finally is like, I'm just going to bring the full force of the curse upon you. You're going to be carried off by a wicked nation, Babylon, and the temple's destroyed, the city's destroyed, you're carried off, and you're scattered among the nations, and everything has gone badly for you, okay? That's how the Old Testament ends. Like, they've received all, the, if you will, the full brunt of the curses in Deuteronomy 28 that we read. You guys remember that? The full brunt of the curses is upon them. They're entirely scattered in exile. Now, that's how the Old Testament ends. Think about that. Where are the promises to Abraham and David? Where's this king who will lead us, this priest who will bring us forgiveness of sins? Where is he? Right, who's truly righteous, who can who can, if you will, cleanse the people from the inside out, giving them whole hearts. Where is he? Right? Now, I want you to remember, though the full force of the curse is upon them, and as they end the old testament, they know it, they know there's a promise coming all the way back in Deuteronomy. So go back to Deuteronomy 29, and we'll end here because you you have to understand these, they're told this is coming. Actually, let's go to Deuteronomy um, 30. Let's just go there to shorten our time. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you called them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Do you guys just check this out? This is before they ever enter the promised land. They're being told... All the blessings and curses are going to come upon you and you're going to eventually be exiled and scattered to the nations, how the Old Testament ends. And you, re- verse three, and re- or two, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes, and enemies have persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground, for the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of this law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Um, in other words, he's telling them, You're gonna be scattered and sent out, and there's a day coming um, when you will be when you will be brought back in. Right? There's a day coming when um, your hearts will be circumcised, and the hearts of your children will be circumcised, um, when you'll love the Lord with all your heart and soul. Uh, you're left hanging at the end of the Old Testament. Like the Old Testament ends and where is that, right? And you're waiting for it until one comes, right? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who is better than David and Abraham in that he is called Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Yahweh saves, that's what Jesus means, right? Um, He is the one who will actually Cleanse you from the inside out, who will establish a people, um, who writes the law on your heart as a people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So who sets up a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Um, So we're waiting for that at the end of Chronicles. So next week we'll look at first Chronicles, or excuse me, 2nd Chronicles 29 through the end of 2 Chronicles, gives us that passage of the exile, which will bring us back to Daniel a bit. Second Chronicles twenty nine to the end of Second Chronicles. Any questions? See that you just surveyed Genesis through Chronicles, the entire Old Testament, and got some stories of kings. All in an hour and ten. Good for you. Way to go, guys. All right. Um, <laughs> I that a um, section with Rehoboam? Um, kind of how you're laying out the contrast between all the kings and the one that we're looking for. To come. Christ. Yeah. I was the part where he's basically telling them, you know, make you, you know, your father's yoke was heavy. Um go and tell them that your is gonna be basically even heavier. I was thinking of Christ's words when he says, My burden is My yoke is easy and my burden is light, is, yeah. Is that connected? Oh, I, I I think clearly Christ is not like Solomon in that way, right? Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest my burden is easy and my yoke is light, is clearly a contrast with what the kings do when they become wicked. The bruised reed he will not break, the, faint, the faintly burning wick he will not snuff out. What, what essentially Rehoboam does is breaks the bruised reed, if you will, and snuffs out the faintly burning wick. Here you have a people coming to him saying, we're just entirely beat down by the way your father dealt with us. We, we, need, you, we need mercy and his response is, uh, my burden is even heavier than my father's, right? Now, what Christ is responding to, obviously, there is the law of Moses. But he's, he's also contrasted with the kind of king who um, doesn't show mercy to his people. So, um, all right. <clears throat> That's a good question, Josh. Really good question. Keep making connections, guys. Follow out the story. It's supposed to be summed up in Christ, right? Yeah, well, the, 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 I would say, Brian, to your point, the wickedness of man is dealt with by God the same way throughout history. And I think our problem is, now, I don't mean in the exact same sense of Israel because, for example, America is not um, an elect nation of God for a particular purpose like Israel is, um, in the Old Testament, right? Like their story. But but the fact is, in principle, it works the same. If you disobey God as a people, you're going to experience his wrath and his curse. And um, so you're seeing it all around. That's why when I preached the sermon on Babel, I just made the comment that, that, that that's right where we are now again. I mean, we're in, we're in Babel, right? And that's the point of Revelation 17 and 18, the great prostitute, Babel on the whore, is that she's, she's basically, um, all the human nations are like her. They're all like Babel. They want all the blessings without God. They want all the things they can get, but they don't want God. And, um, and, and so, so confusion comes upon them. That's the word Babel means. They become confused. Um, and you see them, and you see it. Our, we are a culture who wants blessings and no God. And you, you never go to atheism. Nobody ever goes to atheism. You always go to paganism, to idolatry, to false gods. Um, and you can see it all around. Look around the culture, right? That's exactly where we're going as a people more and more and you can see the confusion that's coming with it. God's judgment is to confuse the peoples. Let them, you want that? Here you go. Uh, you're just gonna lose all sense of, of reality. That's judgment. Now this is part of, but, and this leads to a point that like, especially guys like you and I who've been so politically engaged have to chew on. There are no politicians or laws or political movements, that are going to reverse the confusion of God's judgment that happened in our nation. You want to see this nation change, if you will, largely, and you want to see confusion among the people removed? They have to turn to Christ. The only thing that's going to happen there is God is going to give them new hearts, just from a I mean, if you're a life, and Absolutely. And you're at the individual level, what I'm saying is it doesn't just happen at the corporate level. And what you're getting at is it happens at the individual level as well. well I mean, as a you know, yep. and we've just become a society that worships science and money. Um, yep. And, not God. and sex. Um, I, I think the uh, power. I, I think the... Um, This is where the proverbs are helpful. It's generally true that if you walk in godliness, you see prosperity. Not always true. You can suffer. You're going to suffer. You're in a fallen world. You're a Christian. This is going to happen. But it's generally true that godliness leads to some kind of prosperity. Hard work and godliness, right, leads to prosperity. And laziness, and ungodliness <laughs> leads to financial ruin. We all know that's generally true. We can see it, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. They've always been for our good. They've always been for our good. So um, anyway, all right, let me pray, call it a morning. Father, thank you for this morning, the time we have on your word. We pray that we would continue to honor you in our own lives, that we would um, trust in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and by your spirit working in us, that you would cause us to love your law with, a, with our whole hearts so that we would walk in obedience to it and find it our great um, joy um, to walk with you, to obey you, that we would know it is true that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We pray that we would be that man. Um, we know that ultimately Only our Lord Jesus Christ is that man. May we trust in him and be made like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.